Welcome back to another Restorative Talks, a uh, talk on how to live your best life with Dr. Jeff Tarrant. He's the director of the Neuro Meditation Institute, and I've actually got his book right here, Meditations or Meditation Interventions to Rewire the Brain. I'd highly recommend anyone that listens to this pick it up. I think it's really accessible both for uh, providers, but also clients or just anyone that's looking to deepen their meditation practice. Um, so thank you so much for joining us and, <laughs> and taking time out of your busy day. So, yeah. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah. Well, so, you know, I think a lot of our listeners are familiar with this idea of meditation and in the book, you, you go through that of just, Hey, this is, this has really gotten popular, especially from like that John Kabat-Zinn kind of, but really this is this huge lineage of meditation and you broke it down in a way I've never seen into these four types of meditation. Could you kind of a help our listeners understand like what you understand or define meditation as, and then B how you, how and why you broke it up into these types. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's a good point bringing up right at the beginning, sort of defining what is meditation, um, because it is such a broadly used term. People use it to mean all kinds of different things, and and the way that we really use it is, you know, we talk about meditation as mental training, and. And I think that's actually important, at least from our perspective, because what we're trying to do is get people to understand that everybody can benefit from these practices. You don't have to believe anything. Certainly, they can be spiritual practices and, and can be connected to a religious system, but they don't have to be. You know, and that's where you, know, you mentioned John Kabat-Zinn and mindfulness-based stress reduction. And I think that's something that's very powerful that, that their program, you know, not just them, but, but largely them, kind of introduced to the West, this idea that it's like meditation can be a secular practice. And when you, when you start to look at it that way, it really is mental training. You're, you're really teaching yourself to pay attention to your internal world, your internal landscape in a way that you normally don't. So you're, you're literally changing the way you perceive things in the world, how, how you pay attention. You know, tuning into how you feel about certain things in a subtle way that gives you more control. And so I think, anyway, I think that kind of way of thinking about it is important for a broader audience. And that's where we're coming from, is that it's like this, you know, you can believe whatever you want or you don't have to believe anything. You can be a nihilist and still, uh, still benefit. Um, totally. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I love that. And I think it's, it's so true. And then I think, you know, as you say, we can all benefit. And I think that's what we hear in the media a lot. Or I mean, you go into basically even your, even a Western traditional doctor is going to possibly tell people to pres prescribe them meditation, if you will. And one of the things like your personal story around that of just, Hey, I did this type of meditation and it was actually maybe contraindicated from your brain map. And that really, I was just like, Whoa, what a, I, I'm curious to hear more about that process for you of, of understanding. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. And, and that didn't come till much later. You know, I didn't, I didn't sort of understand what was happening at the time. That's the way these things usually work, right? Um, sort of stumble into something and don't really understand it. But yeah, so the, I mean, the, the short story is that I was practicing Zen from the Rinzai tradition, which, you know, if, if some of the listeners aren't totally familiar, it, it's a very traditional method of teaching Zen, which doesn't give a heck of a lot of instruction. And, and it is one of those practices that is oriented toward shifting your consciousness to uh, more of a 
empty state, a no mind state where there's sort of nothing yeah. going on. So the kind of the stereotype in some ways of meditation. And so I did this for years. And yeah, the story that I tell is that, you know, I got very serious about my meditation practice and was meditating and doing Qigong, you know, at least two hours a day. That was my kind of, wow. I was in it to win it. I was like, all right, I'm going to do this. And, and so I was doing that. I, I was doing it for months and months and months, really dedicated to my practice. And over time, I started feeling worse. I started getting depressed and I started getting kind of lethargic. I started gaining weight and I had to take naps in the afternoon. <laughs> and wow. I, I, you know, I, I didn't understand it and it didn't make any sense. To me. I, you know, and I wasn't even necessarily making the connection that this was connected to the meditation. I was like, I just figured something was wrong with me. Like, what's wrong with me? Because I was doing all the right things. I was eating right. I was meditating like crazy. And so in theory, I should have been feeling better and better. And it wasn't until later that I started to understand that different styles of meditation, different things to the brain. And if you engage in a practice that is not a good match for your brain, uh, that could be a problem. And so for me, my brain already cranks out a lot of alpha, just naturally. I have a ton of alpha, and particularly slow alpha. So, you know, if you looked at my brain from a neurofeedback perspective, I would look very ADHD. You know, I've got a ton of beta, I've got a ton of alpha, uh, and that's just kind of where my brain hangs out. And so that's fine, you know, if you know how to work with it. I've, you know, I've learned how to, how to manage that. But what's interesting is that Zen practices and things like transcendental meditation, they both increase that same brain pattern. So alpha one, that eight to 10 hertz. And so what was happening for me, even though I didn't realize it, was I already had a tendency toward too much alpha in a way that could be problematic. And then I was just, in, I was just dramatically increasing that through my practice. And, you know, too much of a good thing is a bad thing uh, very often. And so, you know, it kind of pushed me over the edge into something that didn't feel good and wasn't helpful for me. And so that's not necessarily how I sort of started into this work, but certainly later down the road gave me a significant appreciation for the idea that not all meditations are the same and that it's really important to look at your own physiology and what your needs and goals are, and then design a meditation practice that's specific. That you know, one of the things we say frequently is that you know it's not a one size fits all kind of a deal. As far as I'm concerned, there's no meditation that is perfect for everybody because we're all different. And so, how how could that be? How could that be that one one particular practice would work for everybody? It doesn't even make sense. But that's the way we treat it. Treat it like. Mindfulness is good for everybody, or TM is good for everybody. Like, well, you know, it depends. And so that's kind of what we're really about is about kind of teaching people about how meditation, how these different styles of meditation work, so that people can have a better idea of understanding what it is that they're doing and if that's a good match for what they're trying to accomplish. Right. And I, I, love, I mean, just hearing that story, I love hearing that A, it's like, yeah, you were you were meditating properly, right? Just by increasing that you're, you're seeing these negative symptoms, which are shown by like, Hey, the meditation you're doing is working and just not working in the way that perhaps you hoped it would. Right. right? You know, so that's to me, such a great piece of like, 
A, for listeners that don't have a meditation practice of like, hey, if you do work this process, it is something that can impact your and will impact your brain. And it might be really valuable to take a moment here. And I think, you know, your book has a couple of questionnaires to go through and, you know, which type, which subtype are you working on? Are you working on trying to improve focus or heart opening for depression and, you know, concerns for PTSD? It's like, you know, everyone going in to do the same thing might actually not be good or is actually not good. Let's, I'll make a more definitive statement there. Yeah. Yeah. So. yeah and, and, you know, and, and that's not to say an analogy I've been using lately is that I, I think of kind of a lot of the, the popular styles of meditation that are out there. So I was just kind of talking about mindfulness, you know, in the generic sense, and also like TM. You know, these are very well-known, very popular kinds of practices. And, you know, it's, the way I think about it is that it's like, probably for most people, any of those are going to work just fine. I think of it like, almost like public school education. You know, yeah. like if you're more or less kind of in the middle of the pack, public school is going to be great. It's fine. It does its job. But if you're super gifted, or you've got some challenges, public school is probably not going to work. It's probably going to do you a disservice. And so I think of meditation that way, that it's like, eh, if you're kind of, you know, you're not struggling with a lot of particular concerns and your brain is working pretty well and you're pretty healthy and, you know, you're probably fine to just pick a style and go with it. But if you are really wanting to develop your practice in a a really uh, intense way, or if you have certain kinds of concerns or needs, then it does make sense to pay more attention. Yeah, I mean, that, absolutely. And I think it's that, like you, you, I like to say, if you're not testing, you're guessing, right? And it's, it's, whereas here, you're just, it's, hey, for maybe 80% or 60% of the population, kind of making up numbers here, but we're going to be okay with what any version of these four meditations is going to, you're going to get benefit. It's just when you're inside of a couple, you know, maybe someone on the spectrum or someone with uh, ADHD or depression, you know, you kind of, and you hit on all those disorders, some of those disorders actually in your book. Right. Also probably for the peak performer as well. Someone who's like, Hey, I, you know, 20 minutes is a huge ask of me. Like let's make sure that 20 minutes I spend is being used effectively towards the goal that we're actually saying. And you have a, you have a way of looking at it that says like, Hey, yeah, you know, because I've, I've pra- as well, I've practiced Zen, I've practiced, I'm actually currently doing a TM practice just kind of for a couple months. And each one I've felt different from, like each right. one has kind of offered a little different insight or a different kind of capacity. You know, and I love your distinction of, I'm going to butcher this, but the, was it, what do you categorize TM as? It was a... Uh, uh, TM is a quiet mind practice. Right. But, it, but it's not that, whereas the focus is with the mantra. And I was like, that's such an interesting thing because that practice of TM is about bringing in pure consciousness as they talk about, but it does use a mantra, which is kind of what you look at as under a focus practice. Right. So, so, T, so TM is kind of an interesting one because, and, and I'm glad you brought that up because most meditation styles aren't pure in, in kind of the four styles. They kind of, you know, move in between the different uh, styles, um, right. which we still haven't defined. So I'll have to define those in a second here, but yeah, um, but the, like TM, it starts with a focus practice. It starts with focus on the mantra generally. And, and then what happens is that over the course of the practice, you let that mantra go. And you sort of shift to this other. 
And so it's like they're using a focus style to get you into quiet mind. So, mm-hmm. so it's really kind of a combo. Um, but the reason that the research data is so clear with quiet mind is because they're looking at kind of where you end up with a TM practice. You know, so not really the mantra aspect, but much more of the, well, the quiet mind state where you know, there's just not much going on, sort of a spacious awareness. Makes sense. So yeah, as you alluded to, I think we should, uh, for our listeners, give them kind of these, these four styles you mentioned in the book. Do you mind kind of giving just an overview of what they each are? And Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and if I get going too long, just, uh, you know, give me a signal yeah. or something. And, uh, oh, you're all good. Let it look. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. So the first style that we usually talk about is focus. And this is the one that most people really understand easily, even with virtually no meditation experience. Because it's kind of what most people start focusing on the breath, for example. And, you know, your mind wanders and you recognize that your mind wanders and you bring it back to your breath. Um, So that's an example of a focus practice. But the reason that we don't just call it breath focus or something like that is because when you look at the research literature, it kind of doesn't matter what the focus, what the target of your attention is if it's the breath or if it's a mantra or if it's an image of the Buddha or a candle flame, if, you're, if the objective of, of how you're using your attention is the same, you're holding your attention on one thing, don't get distracted. When you do get distracted, catch yourself quick and get it back. So as long as you're doing that, the brain is pretty much doing the same thing, regardless of what the exact target is. So that's why we can kind of put all of those into one category, into this focus category. Because your brain is doing the same pretty much. And so, yeah, I'll come back to that one in a minute. That's the basic idea. So mindfulness is the next category. And now we're using the term mindfulness here, which is interesting because culturally, we're using the term mindfulness to mean just about everything. And for us, mindfulness is actually a very specific way of meditating. It's not, it's not everything. So we use the term meditation as the umbrella. And then mindfulness is a specific way to meditate. And so um, with mindfulness, what we're talking about is paying attention in a really gentle, soft, observing kind of way where you're noticing whatever's happening in the present moment, but you're not attaching to it. So you're not grasping for anything. You're not pushing away anything. You're literally just accepting things exactly as they are, right? And that's, that's different. That's different than focus. In fact, when you kind of think about what's happening there, you can see that the way you're using your attention is pretty different uh, with a focus style versus mindfulness. And because of that, the brain is doing something a little bit different. You know, there's some overlap in terms of what's going on in the brain, but there's also some differences. And that's what's important to us is that if you look at how you're using your, uh, how you're using your attention, and what your intention is, those two things really seem to determine how your brain gets activated or deactivated. And so as you shift your attention and the brain patterning shifts. Um, So that's mindfulness. The third one is open heart. And this is, again, kind of an umbrella term. A lot of the research literature looks at loving kindness and compassion practices. And you know, which are very common in like uh, Tibetan Buddhist 
uh, type practices, meta practices, things like that. You know, where you are intentionally activating a positive emotion, love, kindness, passion, joy, forgiveness, attitude, whatever. And then usually you're doing something with that feeling state. So sending it out to others, giving it to yourself, whatever. And so that's kind of the basic formula, right? Is activating a positive emotional state and then doing something. And so we have kind of a broad, we use this broad open heart there because there is a lot of different ways you can do that. But again, if you're activating a positive emotional state and that's your intention, there's some pretty um, standard ways that we know that the brain is going to get in. So we can kind of put those all together. Yeah. And those, and you've kind of, if we could, as we go through, can we talk a little bit about like what maybe the traditional like neural presentation of that? Like, is there an increase of X wave or is it activity in a certain region or? Sure. Yeah. Let me, so I'll tell you what, let me, let me do this. If it's okay. Let me sort of give a quick description of quiet mind. Then I'll kind of go back. Is that okay? Perfect. Sounds perfect. Thank you. Yeah. So, so quiet mind is the fourth category and we've kind of been talking about that with Zen and TM and you know, that's the stereotypical meditation state where there's, there's not much going on. It's pretty quiet. Mm -hmm. You're not thinking about anything. You're not doing anything. Um, it's just kind of empty. Um, and you know, and, and that's what I'm pretty good at. You know, it's like, I can just close my eyes and there's nothing going on. But, you know, for a lot of people, especially people that have a fast brain, that's like an impossibility. You know, the, the idea of sitting and closing your eyes and nothing happening, you know, forget it. Um, that's, yeah, that's me all the way. That's, I mean, that's part of what attracted me to TM in the first place, right? Is what, uh, you know, I'd be sitting in some of these other practices and I'm like, oh my God, that was the longest 20 minutes of my life. <laughs> you know, something about TM actually worked for me to quiet my mind. Not the only way, but just, you know, one of the ones that has worked. Yeah. So. And, you know, and I, and I think TM is really elegant um, with that. And, and I want to come back to that, especially because it's your, your practice. And so, you know, um, some of the ways that I've been thinking about TM and, and why it's so effective. So um, anyway, I'll hit on that as we kind of circle back. Um, Sounds good. So I'm going to go back to focus for a second. So if you're looking at what's going on in the brain, and, and I'm going to kind of oversimplify this just a little bit since we're doing this, you know, kind of audio, and I can't show pictures. Uh, Perfect. Yeah. Um, but there's, there's two patterns that are really important for focus. The first is that the frontal lobes are engaged. And this is, again, this is not what people tend to think about with meditation. They tend to think that the brain gets really quiet. During and, you know, what I, again, what I always say is like, well, it depends. I mean, if you are actually sustaining your attention, you're holding your attention on one thing, that's actually a very active process. You can't turn your brain off and sustain your attention. Like, you have to engage it. And specifically, it's the frontal lobe. And there's specific regions there that are important, like the anterior cingulate, mother areas up there. But so they have to be on. And so from a brainwave perspective, you know, we'll often see some, uh, increases of gamma up there. And you see a lot of, of stuff with gamma right now. And one of the reasons that gamma is so interesting is because it's the brainwave that's most closely associated with increases of blood flow. So if you have an increase of gamma, uh, there's going to be an increase of blood flow. There's more activation. Now, the other area that's really important to look at with focus is in the back of the head. Well, the hub is in the back, but uh, basically it's the default mode network, which also gets a lot of attention in meditation. 
And as it sounds, it's a network, not just one thing, but the hub of the default mode network toward the back and uh, kind of deeper down there. And the default mode network is really important for meditation because its primary job is to is self-referencing, really. So it's you thinking about yourself or thinking about something in reference to yourself. And of course, this is exactly what you're not supposed to be doing during meditation. <laughs> and so the default mode network is very much connected with mind one. So, you know, if you're not focused on your breath, for example, then what are you focused on? Well, you're probably thinking about yourself. You're thinking about lunch. You're thinking about your to-do list or what you have to do tomorrow or whatever. But it all has to do with you. And so in that way, what we want is the frontal lobes to be active, but the default mode network to be quiet at the same time. And you got to have both. Because if you don't have both, then you're not in the right state. And so for me, this is actually a really easy one to measure. You know, because basically you got two spots and we know exactly what we're looking for. And you can tell right away when somebody's mind wants. It's clear as day. And um, just by looking at the key data. And so that's, that's what's going on there. I'm actually going to transition from this one to quiet mind. I'm going to kind of jump over the two middle ones for a sec because of what we were just discussing of how the connection between focus and quiet mind transcendental meditation. So with TM, you're focusing on a mantra or you start with a mantra. Well, that's a focus practice, right? You're holding your attention on one thing. You're using a word or a phrase. With TM, usually, you know, your, your guru gives you a, a, a specific uh, mantra. But, you know, if you're kind of cheating, make up your own mantra. And so you're repeating something over and over, and you're holding your attention there. Now, that's exactly like a focus practice, but here's the difference. At some point during the TM, you kind of let that mantra go. You let it kind of fade to the back and become replaced with basically nothing. It's quiet. And so if you think about the brain regions and what's going on, you're basically going from activating the frontal lobe and quieting the default mode network to quieting the frontal lobe and quieting the default mode network. So you're basically going from focusing on one thing to focusing on no thing. So you focus on one thing, stabilize the mind, stabilize the attention, and then let that go. And when you let the one thing go, well, what's left? Well, nothing. Zero. Go from one to zero. And so that's exactly what you see in a quiet mind brainwave state is that basically the whole brain becomes this alpha one, this quiet brain state. There's nothing. Everything is kind of at rest. And so it just kind of sweeps the whole thing. So that's why I think TM is really clever. You know, it's because they figured out a way to, to kind of transition people into that state. Like, well, just focus on one thing first then drop it actually brilliant yeah, it is and i think you know the other thing they do well in terms of going through their training is naming that so we're understanding what we're looking for and then kind of celebrate like you know they a do a good job which i'm sure we'll talk about here after we go through this is getting compliance so people are actually meditating i think they do a good job at setting the tone for that and then b allowing for thoughts in the practice so you're not judging shaming or feeling like you're doing it wrong they're actually a welcome part of the process and then b is just I mean, I think for me within the first 
gosh, the first meditation, I felt moments of transcendence according to their model, right? According to what, you know, so early on, you're getting a positive reinforcement of, oh, wow, that felt good. Oh, that's nice. You know, so it's, it's, they do a great job at that. And, uh, you know, and they've done a good job at, uh, or they, they certainly put a lot of effort into not sounding religious or, you know, compartmentalizing it into just a, a mindfulness practice. But I think yeah. there, there's certainly a lot there in terms of lineage that it, you know, but like sure. you said, and any of these things can just be practiced for someone looking for, you know, for focus, perhaps someone looking for relief for from ADHD type symptoms and quiet mind. Do you have, what do you correlate quiet mind with or is there any kind of, as far as concerns? Yeah. Like if someone, you know, if ADHD might be focused, you know, someone for like an overactive mind or anxious for quiet mind, is it? Uh, yeah, in general, but, but quiet mind, I think is actually a little broader. Actually, I think quiet mind can be good for almost anybody unless <laughs> you already have too much slow brainwave. Um, and, and the reason that I say that it could be good for just about anybody with that exception is because really what you're learning to do is shut down that internal repetitive, habitual identity machine that causes so much problems for all of us. You know, I mean, most of our distress is really about how we think and talk about ourselves, how we think and talk about ourselves in relation to other people in the rest of the world. And so, and, you know, think about anxiety, you know, well, yeah, you know, the way you're thinking and processing about yourself in relation to the world is what's the problem, you know, or you think about something like an eating disorder where the way somebody is thinking about themselves is distorted. They're not thinking about themselves accurately. They, they're, they're seeing their, their image of themselves is incorrect. Right. Um, and so, like, if you think about those kinds of things, if you can disrupt that system, if you can shut down that part of the brain that is kind of doing this, that's kind of feeding you this kind of identity, if you can shut that down for a moment, then you have an opportunity to create something new, to break open the system, to kind of wedge in there and redefine some of these things. But if you don't quiet it down, how are you ever supposed to shift into a different state? You know, because that, that machine, I keep kind of referring to it as a machine, but you know, that part of our brain uses more energy on average than the rest of the brain. It's, we're constantly thinking about ourselves and processing about ourselves. And I think it's actually getting worse in the world of social media, where it's, it's encouraged, you know, where you're comparing yourself, judging yourself, you're judging others, you're trying to make people, you know, you're trying to appear a certain way, putting a lot of effort into this. And, you know, that's just feeding that default mode network. Uh, totally. It's going to make it, it's actually going to make it agitated is what happens. And that's no good. We know that the default mode network, when it's agitated, usually leads to anxiety or depression or both. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's hard, right? Because this is the the funny thing about meditation. The interesting thing is that the lineage of this runs to probably about recorded history. There's been examples of, you know, meditative practices. I would actually, you know, from a hunter-gatherer standpoint, I would actually make a statement that from the first moment we harvested or an animal or food, we had mindfulness in our, or probably before that, you know, it's like from day one, we've had this in us and now we're having 
all this agitation that's stimulating the default mode network and we have actually less of this. Whereas, you know, there's there's a lacking in that balance. And I think, you know, from the background of a QEEG, so much of what we're looking for is balance. Like, yeah. where is that balance? And if there's a lack of balance, is that okay? Because you're a peak performer or you're an artist or you're whatever. Is that balance, you know, where do you want it to be? Right. You know, so you can look at it critically as well. But, you know, it's... And I, I wonder, too, if that's why meditation's made such a strong comeback and like, as technology's been bigger and greater. You know, and even we're using technology like VR for mindfulness as well, right? So we're using technology-based, you know, neuromeditation, EEG-based, right? So, you know, and I mean, you know, there was a lot in there, but I, you know, the one thing that I think about some is that I feel like in our current day and age that it's like, it's almost like a necessity that people learn how to uh, meditate or practice mindfulness because it's like a counterbalance. Like the rest of our world and our society and our culture is, you know, I mean, if we want to say mindless, you know, I mean, it's, it's very much feeding these really negative oriented processes. And so it's like, I feel like you know, mindfulness in particular is kind of the antidote. And so, you know, especially thinking about kids and adolescents, like, man, you know, if we could teach them these skills uh, early on so that they can learn how to step back from this internal process, to look at it more objectively, to recognize a thought as just a thought without sort of attributing how powerful that could be, you know. And so I'm really encouraged by, you know, the, the programs that have kind of sprouted up, um, you know, for, for younger audiences. And I do think it makes sense as much as I respect the ancient tradition. We live in a very different world, as you were just kind of pointing out. And so I think we have to adapt. Um, and so we can still teach the skills, but we may need new tools uh, to teach it. It's a different audience. And so, you know, I joke sometimes that, you know, when I used to sit at, at the Zendo that I trained at initially, there was usually only about two people there. And, you know, and it's like, well, why was that? And it's like, well, because most people aren't just going to sit for 45 minutes with no instruction and have no idea what they're doing and mm -hmm. hope they figure it out. You know, uh, that's just not the culture we live in. You know, people want, they want more information. Uh, they want feedback. Um, and so I think that's okay. You know, I mean, that's just the world we live in. So it's like, well, let's, let's adapt the instruction. Uh, but to sort of facilitate more people being able to work with these practices. I love that. I mean, I think it's meeting people, yeah, meeting people where they're at. And there's, always, there's been that re reflection, like you said, we can control brainwaves. And now we still have two more states, there two more types of meditation to go through a little bit here too. And, you know, well, why would I do neurofeedback? Or, you know, Dave Asprey is this very hot, very, I don't know if it's popular, but very expensive for years of Zen. and. Uh, you know, I mean, from what I understand, that's basically just alpha modulation or some version of it in the brain, you know? Yeah. And it's, but it's true, right? Like that's what kids are. Anyway, everyone is accustomed to looking at their phone or looking at these things. And I mean, even just thinking about smart watches versus interoception, right? Like what's my heart rate? Well, you know, back when I started racing mountain bikes, it was like, well, could you talk or can you not talk? And that was like almost enough to know what like heart rate zone you're in right now. It's like you get really specific and we're measuring heart rate variability over time for loading in athletes. Right. And 
you know, this is just a great way to adapt with that. And it's not like you can't do these things outside. Right. Or, it's, you know, so yeah. Right. And, and, you know, kind of on that, I mean, I, yeah, I know we still have to get back to the other two um, styles, but you know, as far as the feedback goes, you know, whether it's G feedback or heart rate variability or some other kind of physiological feedback, you know, one of the things for me that really stands out about that is I, I don't, think of these things normally as, as something that, that people would have to use on a daily basis. I mean, I, now we have all these wearables, we have watches and we have things that you can stick on your body that tell you all kinds of stuff. But for the most part, it's like teaching people to increase their sensitivity to their internal state. And once you kind of learn how to do that, you don't necessarily need the equipment. You know, you can start to pay attention more subtle ways to what's going on without the equipment. Don't need the equipment. So I see the equipment as, as, as a power tool, but it's but it's a training tool. You know, it, it's not it's not a replacement. Um, it's a way to kind of learn how to pay attention in a way that um, is challenging, and so it's a way to kind of speed that process up, <laughs> so that you can learn to be aware of these internal subtleties in a way that's almost impossible um, without. And that's the thing I really appreciate about the. G technology is that the more I work with these different styles of meditation with G, it's, you know, it's amazing the subtleties of your internal state that you can start to notice that, you know, 20 years of meditating, I, I, I couldn't find those. Or, or if I did, I just kind of flew right by them and I didn't recognize mm -hmm. what they were. But when you kind of, you know, to be not, not too um, you know, subtle with this, but when you kind of shove it in your face, like, hey, this is what you're doing. It's like, whoa, um, you have to see it. And then all of a sudden right. you're paying attention in a different way. And for me, that's, you know, that's amazing you know, to have that ability. But I feel very fortunate that we live in the time when we do, you know, to have this kind of tech. Um, you know, and some of the, you know, even the Dalai Lama, you know, has yeah. been quoted as saying like, hey, if you've got a technology that'll help you learn how to meditate faster, cool, I'm all for it. Yeah. Oh, I, mean, I love hearing that. It's so true, right? It's like, what a, we, depending on your perspective of things, we don't always have a, or I think most people's sympathetic drive would say we don't have a luxury of time. Right. Okay. And I, and then I think there's another part of that statement of from an environmental concern or a cultural concern that other people would say we don't have a luxury of time. So, and I, I'd say those could stem from different, well, they can both be sympathetic, but right. So there's a lot to be said there. Like if we want to shift consciousness or shift states or shift family cultures, we do a lot of work with at-risk kids and families in crisis. Like, hey, if we want to shift your whole family unit, this mindfulness meditation and tech-based use of that can actually get you there to a stable place much faster. And we've actually started doing some kind of skin temperature stuff with couples and just things like that, where you're just like, Hey, like, you know, they're saying they're activated, but like, we also can literally see that. And that can be helpful for the other person to trust that more. So. Totally. That's great. Awesome. Yeah. So let's see, we had the, uh, the, I'm totally, I, whenever, when you talk about the open heart, loving kindness piece, it's like, yeah, I love that one. You know, the payment, I think Pima children's kind of who I think about in that work. And then also, just this idea for just the gratitude. And then I listened to a podcast recently on this idea of gratitude light of like, there's actually cultivating the virtue of gratitude inside of ourselves yeah. or loving kindness. 
And then there's just like, all right, well, I woke up yeah. and said, I'm grateful for these three things. And they both kind of have a time and a place, but di- different impacts neurologically, perhaps. So what, uh, like, what do you see from those practices? Because I think that's another one that's really kind of getting more popular. So... Yeah, it is. And, and I agree with you. I mean, I, I love uh, Pavement Children's work. She's amazing. And um, uh, there's a lot of um, really solid stuff that's coming out right now in that area. You're right. Um, and for me, there's, there's kind of a big overlap with positive psychology, and, um, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, I mean, that's my background as, as a psychologist. And so, you know, I can't help but you know, kind of find those connections, and kind of, um, you know, kind of intermingle them. You know, and so like a lot of the gratitude research, you know, that's come out of psychology, yeah. you know, in the last 20 years or whatever. And it really is something that you can cultivate and, uh, and develop. Uh, even in my own practice, I've noticed that the more I practice it, if I intentionally practice gratitude, A, the easier it is to do it and the stronger the feelings are. And if I get off of that practice for some reason, I'm doing something else or I'm distracted or I'm traveling or something, it's like, you know, it, it starts to fall off. You know, it's a, you don't sort of, it doesn't just stay, you know, and to me, that makes me think about how the brain is wired, you know, and Rick Hansen does a really nice job of talking about this in his book, Buddha's Brain. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that we're, you know, we're wired for negativity. That's the way the human brain is oriented. You know, it's oriented to look for danger and to protect itself. And so that's kind of a negative orientation. You're always looking for trouble. And then, you, of course, you think about how many people have a trauma history, which is just about everybody. And then that sensitizes the brain, again, for looking for trouble, looking for problems. You know, And so we're all kind of running around with this negative orientation. But what's interesting is that if you intentionally train your brain, you can shift doesn't have to be that way. Now, some of us have an easier time than this than others, you know, but for me, it's amazing that, you know, the brain is so plastic that even something like that, like sort of negativity, you know, you can change it, totally shift it around. So, but it does take practice and repetition. And, and that's the way I think about a lot of these meditative practices is that they're skills. And it's just like any other skill. Like if you want to get good at playing the guitar, well, then you got to practice, you know? Mm-hmm. And if you want to get really good, then you're going to practice every day, you yeah. know? And you're probably going to get a teacher and maybe multiple teachers. And, you know, and so for me, meditation is the exact same way. It's like, well, if you want to get good at this, then you got to do it. And you got to put the time and you got to find a teacher, maybe multiple yeah. teachers. And, and so, and I think gratitude is the exact same way. Gratitude, loving kindness, you know, the more you practice, the stronger it gets, you know, and, and we've got good research now, you know, kind of showing that, you know, so all that research with the Tibetan monks, you know, where they're looking at their brains during a compassion meditation, Richie Davidson stuff at the University of Wisconsin. And what are they seeing? Like huge amounts of gamma showing up in their brains, like three times more gamma than the novice meditation. That's a lot. That's, that's a that's lot of a extra lot. gamma. That's a lot of blood flow. <laughs> That's a lot of yeah. blood flow. Yeah. <laughs> and it's happening in, you know, well, it's happening in a lot of places, but, you know, partly it's happening in places that you would expect connected to A, paying attention, but also areas involved in uh, emotion regulation and empathy. 
And so, I mean, for me, it's just really cool that it's like, yes, you might be born a certain way or you might have certain predispositions and there's certain things that maybe you can't change. And there's a lot of things we can it, you know, it takes some work, it takes some effort, but we have a lot more control over our physiology and our thoughts and feelings than we really, think. you know, we, we yeah. tend to feel like I can't control that. It's like, well, you know, that may not be entirely accurate. Just take some work. Totally. Well, it takes some work. And then it's not like you said, from teaching standpoint, I mean, even me being in the neurofeedback field for the past handful of years, it's still like, I just somehow I'm like, how did I not know about this field of neuromeditation? Right. So there's, you know, and having, you know, I went through Naropa, which is a mindfulness based or kind of contemplative based education system. So we had, you know, every class we'd sit before and after and have kind of rituals and routines you know, there's been so many different teachers and very few so far of that I've been able to sit down and say like, okay, well, this is it's like, well, here's the benefits of it. That's, that's great. But also, Hey, we can also hook your head up to this device and see, Hey, maybe you fall better into one of these four categories. And I think, you know, just for the listeners who, cause I know that you have a website where people can find you and find practitioners and maybe yeah. people won't have access to it, but there's even in the book, you have these great questionnaires that can help you figure out maybe what subtype of meditation you might be best for you. I yeah. think even just starting there can just give what, even if it just gives you that like added bonus of confidence to be like, you know what? No, I'm going to stick through this a little longer. So one of the things we, we both talked about is compliance and that, I, mean, I don't know if you have a way to hack or trick compliance, but I think that's been the biggest issue I've seen with myself and anyone with yeah. meditation is just continuing to commit. So what, what have you found anything that works with that or? Um, no, <laughs> Darn <it. laughs> no, no, there's, I, 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 I had to say that it was too good of a setup, but, um, yeah. but you know, the, so yeah, let me say a couple things about that. One is, so going back to the questionnaire. So yeah, on our website, which is just neuromeditationinstitute.com. You can actually take the survey uh, on the website and it'll give you a score for each of the four styles and then kind of suggest which style might be a good match for you. And so I'm just pointing that out in case, you know, you don't have the book, you don't have access to the questionnaire, you can just take it awesome. online. Perfect. Um, and, um, and so as far as compliance, it's interesting because actually things like the questionnaire, I think actually help a lot. One of the things we've noticed is that if we can give people a basic level of understanding of what it is they're doing and why and how, it goes a long way. So, you know, we've, we teach kind of six-week courses uh, at our center uh, for each of the four styles. So we'll teach six weeks on focus, six weeks on focus, et cetera. And one of the things that struck me as really odd when we first started doing this was that we would have a bunch of like engineers signing up for our class. And I say odd because I don't normally think of engineers as being meditative. You know, mm -hmm. maybe I'm being stereotypical, but you know, they tend to be kind of analytic and you know, very scientific and you know, meditation might be kind of woo-woo or something. And at first I didn't really think much about it, but then down the road was trying to figure out like why do we keep getting all these engineers showing up? And, and it was because we were explaining. We were explaining, this is how this works. And it was like, oh. And as soon as we would explain how it works, they would do it. And it was like, okay. You know, like they weren't going to do it if they didn't understand. 
you know, like you just said, just do this. Like that's not going to happen. Not going to do it. But if you break it down, it's like, here's the science. Here's the research. This is what's going on in your brain. This is why this is a good practice. This is how it can be useful. Here's some tips and tools and strategies so that you can modify this to make it a little bit more user-friendly for you. Mm-hmm. Um, like those things do seem to make a big difference for compliance. Now, you know, when I kind of jokingly, semi-jokingly said, you know, nothing works. Um, because even with all the tips and tools and information, there's still the issue of when it comes down to it, people have to do it themselves. You know, yeah, you take a six-week class and then, you know, yeah, you can go to drop-in meditation, whatnot. But there's still the issue of like, you have to find a space at your house or whatever and kind of do the work. And, and that's challenging. I, mean, I think it's just challenging for everybody. And one of the things we've started doing lately is we just developed kind of a new little course. It's not really out there anywhere at the moment. We've taught it locally, but we haven't kind of put it on the website or anything. But basically building and designing your meditation practice is basically a stepwise process to help people really break it down and address all of these things. Because some of it is just very practical that doesn't get talked about in a lot of, you know, you go to a Zendo and they're not necessarily going to talk about some of the practicalities of time, like you brought up. You're like, well, I don't have time. Well, you know, they may or may not address it. And it's like, but that's a huge consideration. If somebody feels like they don't have time, well, that, that's a, that's a, it just stops in its tracks. There's, there's nowhere else to go. Right. Um, and so, you know, addressing those things, addressing some of the stereotypes about meditation and, you know, helping people like brainstorm and figure out how they can make it work for themselves. Again, for us, it's that kind of individualized process that there's not a one size fits. all. So how can I be creative with this person or help them to be, you know, we just taught a workshop recently in Oakland and one of the, we were doing a walking meditation. And one of the people that was in the group had never done that before. And they're like, oh my God, this is amazing. Like, this is, I could totally do this. And then of course, their next thing was, I live in a tiny apartment. And it's like, okay, so how many steps do you need to do a walking meditation? You know, just because we had this giant yoga studio that we could use right now, you don't need a giant yoga studio. You could take four steps one direction and turn around and take four steps back the other direction. Mm-hmm. You know, but but sometimes people get stuck on that. So they on something really simple like that. That it's like, oh, I don't have the right kind of space, or this yeah. doesn't look the way that I imagined it in my head. Um so anyway, I, I feel like I spend a lot of time with people kind of more in coaching, you know, kind of helping them work out some of those things. I, I I completely agree. And I think, you know, I know for myself, there's been a lot of, and I think I'm going to have this guy Mason on our podcast in the coming weeks. And I'm a part of his coaching group where it's, you know, peer coaching where you just set a to-do list for the week. And one of my items is to meditate twice a day. And if I don't do that, then I have to pay $5, but so does my coach for the week. Right. You know, so there's like that peer accountability. There's all these different ways to kind of hack motivation systems, right. You know, until it becomes a routine and ritual, you know, and I think, to your point of just, we all romance, like I love to just romanticize sitting on my bolster and just, you know, 
I'm like levitating and there's like you know, <laughs> flying around or whatever. And that's not really the reality of it. It's like, you know, my dog often comes in and bothers me and, you know, there's noises in the other room or someone's playing music next door or whatever the things are. But we can also still use those as ways to turn inwards or to, to reflect or do any of those styles of meditation. Right. Oh. And I, so, you know, it's a, it's a process. And I think that's something too, where it's like, it's not easy. Like this is not a, it's simple, but not easy. So. Yeah. Yeah. Not, it, yeah. And, and, you know, I'm glad you brought that up because I think that's another thing you know, people kind of get the idea that it's like, Oh, you know, if, when I meditate, I should feel totally blissed out. It's like, you know, that's probably not going to, I mean, that's going to happen sometimes, but a lot of times that's not the way that it works. You know, a lot of times it feels a little bit like a struggle, mm-hmm. um, you know? And so then people are like, well, wait, this isn't what I thought it was going to be. This, this isn't what I signed up for. And it's like, well, you know, again, that's your mind. That's your mind sort of playing games with you. So it's like, you know, can we do the work anyway? Even though it's tricky, even though it's a challenge, even though it's not pleasant all the time, even though you don't yeah. want to. Well, and I think that resounding answer needs to be yes, where it's for, for anyone in that practice, it's like, Hey, let's try to make it as little friction as possible till you have the routine. But some of my, and this is interesting because I notice even mine where I've had some challenging meditations where tears have come, or there's just been tension. You're kind of doing this kind of, for me, it's a somatic processing and some of the hardest ones though, or when like, it's like nothing's happening. You know, like, it's like, it's not blissful or it's not uncomfortable. It's just kind of like that, and you're like, you know, so for me, that's one of the ones that's hardest to tolerate, you know, yeah. and for other people, it's different ways, but it's just, you know, signing up for it. And I think one of the things TM does, you know, their TM's really big on secrecy and, you know, whatever. I'm right. not a TM aficionado by any means, but one of the things that I thought was interesting going through their process is they ask you to ask people in that first week, what have you, what has anyone noticed about you or what have you noticed about yourself? And I think Seaburn Fisher has a way of asking, you know, what's something about yourself that surprised you? And I really like that kind of phrasing of it. Cause I think that's really important as you go through it. And it helped me stay longer in practices of like, Oh wow, I didn't get angry at that thing or I didn't overreact or I felt like I could last longer in an uncomfortable situation. And when we start seeing those benefits, which can happen really quite quickly, yeah, and I think that's another way to get more compliance. For so. sure. And, you know, and you, I mean, I think you brought up a couple of things that are really important, you know, and one is the, the support, you know, having support, you know, because if you're trying to do this on your own and there's nobody to talk to about it and nobody to encourage you or to motivate you, it's like, man, you know, I mean, it, it's hard enough to do it, you know, even with all of that stuff. But to try and do it on your own without any kind of uh, backup is, I mean, it's almost sort of a setup for failure. And so, yeah, I mean, if people can find a community, whether it's online or whether it's through a coach or whether it's through a, a, you know, uh, some sort of local meditation group or whatever, even if it's not your tradition, I I find it helpful. You know, I'll go sit with a group sometime that's not really my thing, just to sort of see what other people are doing and to talk to other people and hear their, you know, perspective and. You know, that's valuable um, as well. Um, I had another thing, but I don't remember what it was. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, really, well, I think we, we're probably a good time to start wrapping up. And I know that yeah. and for the listeners, I'd imagine there's a ton of actionable stuff here. You know, there's 
I love that your questionnaires are on your website. I didn't even know that. I'm going <laughs> to, when I'm done with work today, that's going on the to-do list. I'm excited. <laughs> and I, I think, you know, just taking that first step. And I think in, you, in your book, you had a, I'm going to paraphrase and probably butcher, but I'll do my best. But just to like start with three minutes scale, just, you know, and for those that listen to, I think episode one with Joe, it's put your running shoes on and just get out the door even if that means it's once around the block, like maybe you didn't even make it to the gym, but just some sort of even, you know, even if it's just going to take the questionnaire and then I'm going to sit with my eyes closed for 30 seconds, you know, just get started. I love that tone that you take. It's so, so powerful for, you know, when you're saying two hours meditation, I'm like, Whoa, you know, I'm doing 20 minutes twice a day and that feels like, Whoa. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah, and I know I know we need to wrap up, but you know, I I totally agree with you that you know when I'm working with sort of somebody new or a new class, yeah, we start with you know, an expectation of sort of like three minutes because everybody can do three minutes, mm-hmm. and you know it's interesting because when you set that as the bar, um, a couple of things are really important. One is that people start succeeding really quickly because they'll notice that oh I sat for five minutes, and it's mm-hmm. like so instead of that being like a disappointment, like, oh, I really wanted to sit for 20 and I only sat for five. It's like, oh, I was supposed to sit for three and I sat for five. Well, you've already, you've already made progress. And the other thing that happens is that sometimes people will sit for 20 or 30 minutes. And the reality is they're only meditating for the first two minutes and the rest, the other 18 minutes, they're daydreaming, you know? <laughs> and, and so it's like, well, what's the point of that? You know, it's like, you might as well kind of like match where you're at right and optimize your meditation. Um, and as that, you know, as that muscle grows, then, you know, you can lengthen. Just like neurofeedback, right. For anyone that's worked with, you know, most providers are going to start you shorter and they're going to say quality over quantity. It's kind of like doing a squat. The last thing we want to do is blow someone's lower back out because you're trying to get what you think you need to do three sets of 10. But the reality is either we need to lower weight. And then in this instance, that's time or, you know, maybe shift into, okay, I couldn't do that, but I can do a loving kindness meditation. I mean, I try to do that while I'm driving because that's one of my, you know, points where I get frustrated. So, but, uh, yeah, anyway, well, I honestly, I could think I could, I'm, I'm grateful for your offerings because I'm definitely going to be looking forward to working and learning from you more in the future. And I hope right. our listeners kind of have that same feeling I do of, you know, there's so much here to dive into, you know, a quick little hour show is not going to, do it, but I think it can get people a taste of like, hey, there's there's some ways to really deepen these practices. So thank you so much for coming on. Yeah. Hey, so, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah. And uh we'll link everything in the show notes below, but is there a best way to for people to get a hold of you? Just neuromeditationinstitute.com, all one word. They can also, you know, people can mail me at doctor.tarrant. So D-R period parent T-A-R-R-A-T at Hotmail. I know I still have a hot meal. That's um, all good. I was trying not to judge. It's better than AOL, so you're good. <laughs> right. <laughs> Those are the best ways to get me. Awesome. Well, cool. Thank you for your time and uh, for all our listeners. Thanks for tuning in. 